2: If you went on a road trip and you didn't stop for a Big Mac or drop a crispy fry between the car seats or use your McDonald's bag as a placemat, then that wasn't a road trip. It was just a really long drive. Bada ba At participating
1: McDonald's.
0: If you're thinking, I should go for a run today, but it looks like it could rain, Sierra says save on epic rain jackets. If you're also thinking, but I can't go out in these beat-up old running shoes... Sierra says, save on top brand running shoes. And if you're still thinking, but I'm also busy performing brain surgery, well, then we say, you
1: really should have led with that. Sierra, let's get moving to your local store, like now, go. Are you looking for a view of the world that's a bit different? Hi, I'm Jason Palmer, a host of The Weekend Intelligence, a podcast from The Economist. Join us to hear the stories that matter most to our correspondents and editors. Every Saturday, we introduce you to people and ideas that take you outside the ordinary and expand your horizons one episode at a time. Join us and see the world from a new perspective. To listen free until May 31st, search Spotify for The Weekend Intelligence
0: we might find sequences that look like Atlantic salmon, which we'd expect to find in Loch Ness. We might find sequences that look like pike, which, again, we might expect to find. And then, of course, the question is, is there anything there that is not known to science previously but might fit, for example, into our understanding of the Tree of Life around about the place where reptiles sit? If indeed there is a monster, and if indeed that monster is, uh, as some people have suggested, an ancient plesiosaur-like creature,
1: You're listening to the Science Focus podcast from the BBC Focus magazine team. We're the UK's best-selling science and technology monthly, available in print and in several digital formats throughout the world. Find out more at sciencefocus.com or look out for us in your app store.
2: Hello and welcome to the Science Focus podcast. I'm Alice Lipscomb-Southwell, the production editor of BBC Focus magazine. For years, rumours have abounded that a mysterious creature is lurking in the murky depths of Loch Ness. The only trouble is, save for a few blurry, unconvincing photographs and videos, no one has ever managed to find even the slightest scrap of evidence that it actually exists. Several previous scientific expeditions searching for the beast using sonar beam and satellite technology have all drawn a blank. But now, a new search launched by geneticist Neil Gemmell promises to be our best hope of tracking down Nessie to date. Gemmel and his team are analyzing eDNA, e-DNA, or environmental DNA, the genetic material, like skin, feathers and excrement, left behind by an organism living in the waters of the loch to search for clues of its inhabitants, much like a forensic scientist does when looking for DNA evidence at a crime scene. Commissioning editor Jason Goodyear speaks to him about how the project got started, how the technique works and what he hopes to find.
1: Okay, so you're heading up a project that's looking for evidence of the Loch Ness Monster using DNA techniques. Now, that's quite a statement. So let's start at the beginning. How did this idea first come about?
0: Uh, It's quite serendipitous, really. So we've been using a tool called Environmental DNA now for a number of years to look at what species are present in the marine environment around New Zealand. And I uh, was quite struck by how powerful it was to detect um, even subtle variations between, say, rocky shores and sandy uh, shores and the species that you f- would expect to find there. You find things like flounder in sandy areas and you find things like cod in rocky areas. And, you know, that came through an DNA signal. And so I started wondering about other ways we could use it to look for um, things that were a bit more mysterious. And the Loch Ness Monster struck me as something that... Uh, was both fun and also um, potentially quite interesting to the general public. Because when we talk about environmental DNA, um, some people are interested, but generally they just sort of shrug their shoulders and go, okay, that's quite interesting. But as soon as we started talking about looking for a monster, the conversation changed quite profoundly.
1: Yeah, okay. So I think most of our listeners will know um, or at least have a decent idea about what DNA is. But um, you, you mentioned there... This is a specific type of DNA called environmental DNA. So can you tell me a little bit about that please?
0: Yeah, sure. So environmental DNA is is basically the detritus of life. It's the pieces of skin and small hairs from say our bodies that we would leave in our passing as we go about our day-to-day existence and and other organisms in the environment do exactly the same thing. So a uh, fish swimming through the water is constantly losing uh pieces of itself, if you like. It could be pee or it could be poo, it could be pieces of skin or flakes of um, scales or, or what have you. And what we're effectively doing with environmental DNA is capturing cellular material that has been released by other organisms, sometimes it's the entire organism itself, and we're filtering it out of the water, extracting the DNA from it, and then sequencing that DNA to find out what organisms were present in that water at around about that time.
1: Right, so do you need any special equipment to gather the, uh, the samples? Well, obviously
0: everything needs to be very sterile because we don't want to contaminate our sample with extraneous DNA, whether it be from humans or from uh, other samples. Um, so we, we need to keep things nice and clean where we can, but basically we need a bucket and we need a syringe and we need some way to filter that water. Um, And when we're capturing uh, material water at depth, then we need special devices to actually uh, collect, say, a litre of water at a specific depth at a specific time. But that's pretty straightforward. You generally have sort of traps that uh, open and they go through the water. And then you send a weight down and that weight closes up that trap and you get a litre of water from, say, 200 metres down in Loch Ness.
1: Okay, so once you've got the the sample, I assume you you take it back to the lab, and uh, and and analyze it. What goes on during that process?
0: Yeah, so that's actually quite a laborious process, but it's not as nearly as glamorous as hanging out on a boat, and you know collecting water samples from you know the UK's biggest uh, body of fresh water. So in the lab, it's 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 hard work. It's literally uh, cracking open these um, filters that we've uh, collected at Loch Ness. Uh, And processing the DNA out of that, and that's literally a a process of sort of uh, dissolving it, and then uh, purifying it, and then resuspending it in a in a substrate that's going to protect it. Uh, And then once we've got the DNAs from those samples, we are then uh, going through a variety of processes. One's PCR to make multiple copies of uh, DNA of specific uh, types. And then the other would be to sequence that uh, using short-read um, sequencing technologies.
1: Anyway, that sounds like uh, quite quite a job. So you mentioned you've got a litre of uh, liquid. Mm-hmm. How do you separate the different species? How do you identify the different species within that fairly small sample of water?
0: Oh, right. So we uh, that happens after we've got the sequence information. So once we've got the sequence information, what we can do is we can... Uh, look at the DNA sequence that we've obtained, and then we can relate that back to international databases to see if there are any sequences that are like the ones that we've found. And so, for example, there is a fairly uh, strong DNA signal that helps us identify whether things are, say, a vertebrate or an invertebrate. And then within each class of organisms, whether it be vertebrates or invertebrates, we can generally get down to, if not species level, probably genera or family level. So there's this uh, hierarchical arrangement of life um, that we've, that we've uh, I guess, used um, for many years now to help us understand better uh, the diversity of, of organisms that live around the planet. And we're using that framework to basically classify each of our DNA sequences.
1: Sure. So it's, a, I guess, a little bit like um, forensic DNA that you'd see in a, in a crime scene or something like that.
0: It's actually quite similar in, in many regards. So obviously with a crime scene sample, what you're trying to do is take the sequence that you've found or the or the DNA profile that you've found and then match that against a, a database of, of potential suspects. Um, and where you get a match, you say, OK, this could be the person that uh, committed the crime. And in our case, what we're doing is we're matching this against the database of of all the fishes, and insects, and birds, and, and other things that have been sequenced already. And we're just asking, uh, are any of the DNA sequences that were found in Loch Ness like those that have been previously described? And, and so, for example, we might find sequences that look like Atlantic salmon, which we'd expect to find in Loch Ness. We might find sequences that look like um, pike, which again, we might expect to find in Loch Ness. And then, of course, the question is, is there anything there that is not known to science previously but might fit, for example, into our understanding of the tree of life around about the place where reptiles sit? If, if indeed the, there is a monster and if indeed that monster is, uh, as some people have suggested, an ancient plesiosaur-like creature.
1: So um, what were the conditions like? out on, I know Scotland is, is, isn't exactly famous for its great weather. What was it like um, gathering the samples?
0: It was actually, I, I had, have to say, I had some trepidation about going uh, into the field because we had a two-week window and I thought, OK, I wonder if, if the weather plays nicely, this will go very well, but if it doesn't, it could be terrible. And as it turned out, we had this period of about a month in northern Scotland where the weather was extraordinarily good. Maybe it was even longer than that, but for the two weeks we were there, it was, um, it was, it was fantastic. The winds, uh, was, winds were gentle, so the wave action on the lock was low, uh, the sun shone more often than not, and the temperatures were quite mild. So um, I don't want to make it sound like we had a jolly, because we did not quite hard work, uh, but it was uh, made more pleasant by the fact that the weather uh, was fantastic.
1: Yeah. So you mentioned earlier about um, going down to different depths and so on and taking them from different environments. What kind of um, samples did you take from the lock? So we, we took
0: um, about a litre of water at a time from lots of different parts of the lock. So we took over 250 samples in the end. And these included samples that were taken at the surface of the lock or near the shoreline. And we also took a, a slightly lower number of samples at significant depths around the lock, basically running a transect, so a straight line, north and south through Loch Ness, uh, from say Fort Augustus all the way up to um, Inver- Inverness. And, and we, um, we collected samples at, say, mostly around uh, 50, 100, 200 meters depth. And one of the reasons we were interested in doing that was to understand what was living, uh, or what, what life is present uh, at depth in Loch Ness, because it's the second deepest um, body, uh, freshwater body in, in the UK. Um, and nobody had ever looked at eDNA signals at such depth. We weren't sure what species we might find there, there was some suggestion that we might find some new bacterial species because Loch Ness gets very dark very quickly because of um, all the uh, micro uh, colloids in the water, the peat, tannins, um, effectively act like a, a, a polarising filter, just like in your sunglasses, blocking out the light. So within a few metres going down into Loch Ness, it gets pitch black. Um, so we thought what we would find there is chemically driven ecology uh and new bacterial species and i can't say whether we we're just analyzing those data now so i don't know too much about exactly what we've found but that was the premise behind looking at those various steps was to see how life was uh, stratified in loch ness and what species we might find
1: right. so um what are your chances of finding the uh, loch ness monster then
0: i don't know to be honest i mean i'm skeptical there is such a thing um I mean, you can only find what you find. And, of course, if we don't find anything, well, there's plenty of explanations why we might not. We weren't there at the right time. We didn't sample the right piece of water. We haven't looked for the right sorts of creatures, or Nessie is a mythical beast anyway, so why would we expect it to have DNA? But what we do know is that using the approach that we've taken, we will get a very, very good a survey of the biodiversity of Loch Ness in 2018. We'll be able to describe the fish and other species that are present in Loch Ness, and I think that's going to be really useful information. And so fr- from the get-go, my view was this is a bit of fun in that we can bring people on an adventure. What are we going to find? Uh, is there a monster? We don't know. But at the But the, on the other hand, there was always this fundamental science behind it, which is what is present in Loch Ness and how will that help us with the future management of the Loch? And that's, to me, um, from a scientific point of view, a, a, a good question to, to ask. It fits into a lot of different frameworks um, around how people are trying to manage um, lake systems globally. Uh, and of course, there's the added advantage that, in this case, we might find a monster.
1: Yeah, so um, you mentioned the uh, playasaur that some people say mm-hmm. that it might be. But there's some more sort of plausible explanations being, that have been put forward, like perhaps um could be a sturgeon um, or, or a large eel. Do you think that that's got any credibility to it? Yeah, so
0: I think there might be some credibility around the idea that there might be large fish that are, are present within Loch Ness. One possibility is that's been put forward by Adrian Schein is this giant sturgeon, uh, that would be probably an infrequent visitor to Loch Ness, and whether or not we detect it's, uh, the presence of such a creature in our samples, we don't know. Another idea that had been put forward was a giant catfish, wells uh, whales catfish, which were introduced from Europe uh, around Victorian times. Uh, it is it is uh, reported. So uh, those can grow to 12, 16 feet in length, so the, you know, that might be an explanation. We can test that. Giant eels are harder. Um you know what? What if we find eel DNA in Loch Ness? Which, you know, chances are we will. How do you know it's giant? Um, you know, it might just be an ordinary eel. So, we I guess we would be looking for an eel-like DNA sequence that's a little bit different from the common eel or common European eel that um, we we already know of. So, uh, again, we can we can look and test that idea. Uh, what we will. Probably not be able to do is you know if we don't find anything then obviously you can't prove a negative, and if we find something that uh, could be an explanation that will require further further work you know if, for example we find sequences that look like a new eel species well I think that would be really interesting but um, you know whether it would take it would take a lot more work and effort to figure out whether it might be a giant ELS has been um, suggested by 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 some of the the Loch Ness community.
1: I mean, do you think there's any chance of finding um, a new species that's unique to Loch Ness that is perhaps slightly less glamorous than the monster, but still an interesting find nonetheless?
0: Oh, I think there's a very good chance that we'll find uh, DNA sequences of species as yet undescribed, uh, particularly for for microorganisms, bacteria, that sort of thing. Um, So it might not be particularly glamorous, but I would be relatively confident that somewhere in our DNA sequence data lies uh, evidence of a, of a species as yet
1: undescribed to science. Great. So um, it's, it's my understanding anyway that it, this kind of survey, this yeah, eDNA technique, is, is relatively new. But um, have there been any sort of previous success stories using this technique before?
0: Yeah, so I think that's what gave us encouragement to try it in the first instance. So there's been quite a lot of work now, uh, certainly in freshwater environments, looking at invasive species, which is another aspect of what we're trying to do. So so in, in Europe and in Australia and other places, it's being used as a early detection system of invasive freshwater species. Um, so in, in, in the highlands, for example, pink salmon, which is a Pacific salmon species, uh, is looks to be self-introducing itself. Uh, it was seen spawning in the Ness River in 2017. Um, That could have some effects on local salmon stocks. So uh, maybe if we see evidence of pink salmon, we'll get some idea of how it's uh, distributed in Loch Ness and how well established it is. Uh, So that could be useful and important. Uh, And also this technique is used a lot to monitor large, uh, hard-to-see organisms like whales. So one of the first uses was to, to look at whale abundances and distributions in the Baltic Sea. And that was probably published about three or four years ago now. There's been further work on whale sharks and sharks and, and other large species, again, which can be hard to detect and, and see using traditional approaches, but eDNA seems to be a very, very powerful way to monitor those species in the natural environment, non-invasively.
1: Great. So would you say like doing this sort of thing is kind of like a, I don't know, like a health check or something for the lock? You can see what, what's what's going on beneath the surface?
0: Yeah, I think that's exactly right. So we'll have a snapshot in time from June two thousand and eighteen that tells us what species diversity is present in Loch Ness at that time, and I think going forward that will be an important baseline from which uh, further uh, investigations can can be made. So how is it? Cha- how does it change seasonally, and how is it changing um, over years? Uh, what might happen? Um, if there has been a significant um, chemical spill, uh, what would that do to the biodiversity in a particular area? Or what would happen if we uh, increase protection of particular waterways around Loch Ness? What would we see in terms of biodiversity signal that, uh, that, that suggests that there has been improvement from those management practices? So in many ways, I see this as a very powerful monitoring tool that gives us information over time about how our our actions affect our environment.
1: So, you have plans to to come back to Loch Ness in the future.
0: I'd be back there at a drop of a hat. It was it was a wonderful place to visit, and um, you know the colleagues that I've 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 made through this project are, are, are fantastic.
1: So, uh, when can we expect to uh, start hearing some results?
0: So, a lot of that depends um, a little on on on. Um, on production and, and, and whether we actually get a full documentary out of this. Uh, so we're still talking about that. Um, we would expect to have the science by early next year. And uh, if everything goes to plan, then I guess um, if, if we don't have a production deal, then you'll, everyone will hear about it probably relative, relatively soon after that. And if we do, then it might take a few months before we have something in the can. And obviously the documentary would screen before uh, we would – make a public announcement
1: about the results. Great. Well, yeah, I'll definitely uh, be looking out for that then. Um, Thanks very much for taking the time to speak to us and uh, good luck with the project.
0: No, thanks very much. It's been lovely talking with you.
2: That was Neil Gemmell talking about environmental DNA and the search for the Loch Ness Monster. Thank you for listening to the Science Focus podcast. In our December issue, which is on sale now... We take a look at the Mars InSight mission, which will soon be arriving at the Red Planet. It'll be drilling deep beneath its soil to find out its secrets. We also investigate the Gateway space station, which is currently under development. And of course, there's much, much more inside.
1: Thank you for listening to the Science Focus podcast from the BBC Focus magazine team. We're the UK's best-selling science and technology monthly, available in print and in several digital formats throughout the world find out more at sciencefacus.com or look out for us in your app store.